series, Cradle, Cross, Crown. And this series is nothing more than a focus on the wonderful Savior who is Jesus Christ. The Gospel writer, the book of Luke, very first verses of, of chapter 1 of Luke. Why, why does Luke write this book? He writes it to Theophilus. And why does he write it? He writes it so that Theophilus and us might know that Jesus is truly the Messiah. That he is truly who he says that he is. He is truly the Son of God. I want you to know this morning what Luke wants you to know, and that is Jesus is truly the Messiah. The one who's been long anticipated to restore the world to how it should be, to restore your heart to where it should be, and that is in the very presence of God. He is a restorer. God is one who seeks and saves the lost. And this Messiah, we have known from the very beginning that things are broken, and you know in your own life that things are broken. Things aren't how they should be. Can I just get a witness? Okay, my wife is not here, thankfully, because she would amen that real big. Because I'm not how I should be. Things are broken. We know this. There's this longing for a restoration of the way things should be. And that's the wonder of Christmas. It's the wonder of the gospel message. It's the wonder of the book of Luke. It's why he writes. So that we might know that Jesus is the Messiah. God has sent an appointed one, his own son, to restore you to the way that you were created to be. Isn't that good? It's great. Jesus, the Messiah. Well, this morning we're going to turn our attention to the Lord Jesus and we're going to worship Him in one of the most sacred moments in His life. One of the most pivotal and sacred, one of the most beautiful moments in the life of Christ. And it is quite honestly a turning point in His life and in His ministry. And, you know, as we've been going through this series, we've been looking at Jesus during His uh, last week of his earthly life and ministry. We've been focusing on the great hope of his first coming, of his birth, because of what Jesus came to fulfill in his ministry and in his death. The fullness of the gospel is unpacked here for us in the book of Luke. And we've been looking at, at Jesus from the perspective of different ones, but this morning, the perspective, you can't really turn to anybody who was there with Jesus to get the fullness of what we're going to be looking at this morning in his life and ministry because actually he was alone. He was with his disciples in this moment. We'll talk about this in a second. But honestly, the fullness of the account has to come from the Lord God. And he thankfully has given us an account of what happened in this most sacred moment in all of the Gospels for us to see and behold and to worship Jesus in the fullness of his glory. And I want you today to worship Jesus. I just want your heart to be happy. I want you to adore him. You know the song that we sing at Christmas? Oh, come, let us adore him, right? I want you this morning to come. I want us to come and adore Jesus Christ, our Lord. You ready for this? This is Jesus. If you'll turn your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 22. We're going to be starting in verse 39. I just want to set the context. It's just after the, after the Passover meal with the disciples. We looked at this meal last week. Jesus shares this final meal. He the covenant of the new kingdom is inaugurated with his body and his blood. He says, take and receive from me, eat and be fulfilled. Jesus has now fulfilled the ministry that God has given to him. He's prepared his disciples, although they don't fully understand it yet. And now has come the time for Jesus to obey the Father unto death. In the next, Jesus knows exactly what is about to happen. In the next 24 hours, he is about to be betrayed. He's about to be accused wrongly. He's about to be 
tried unjustly. He's about to be condemned for death and then beaten and flogged until he dies there on the cross. Not because he was guilty, but because we are. And you can only imagine the weight that Jesus feels at this moment. You can only imagine. He's 33 years old. I mean, some of you, 33, some of you know what that was like. Some of you are close to 33. 33 years old. You can only imagine the weight that he felt. And it is here in the garden that Jesus fights a lonely battle. Luke chapter 22. We will start in verse 39. Hear the perspective of the Lord on the Lord Jesus. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a Stone's throw. And he knelt down. And he prayed. Saying, Father, if you are willing, oh, Father, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the crown. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and he he found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, "Why, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. God, we come to you this morning with humble hearts. Lord, we cannot help but just be in awe as we look at our Lord Jesus this morning and what he is bearing for us. God, we pray by your spirit and by your word that you would open our hearts and our eyes to see and to believe, to behold and to receive the wonderful Savior who is Jesus that we might be changed by worship and that we might be encouraged by what He's doing for us, God. And most of all, that we might continue, some of us maybe for the first time, to believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There are three wonderful provisions of the Lord Jesus that I want to show you this morning from the text. Are you excited? Three wonderful provisions that I want to show you this morning of our Lord Jesus. Provisions for you. And I want you this morning to come and adore Jesus. I want your heart to be captivated and caught up in the wonderful Savior who is Jesus Christ our Lord. I'm telling you, if you go through this Christmas season and you do all your shopping and you do all your cooking and you do all the festivities, but your heart doesn't worship Jesus, you've missed it. You've absolutely missed it. Be captivated by the wonder of Jesus. Three wonderful provisions I want to show you this morning. I'm talking wonderful and we should worship him for all three. First one is this, his necessary sacrifice. You got something to write it down? Come on, y'all got smartphones? Take them out. Write this down. I don't, I don't preach for nothing. Listen here. You need to write this down so later you can go meditate on the word of God. 
This is not an entertainment show for 30 minutes and then that's it. We're feasting on the word this morning. You write this stuff down. Three wonderful provisions. First, his necessary sacrifice. Second, his chosen suffering. And third, his willing submission. Now we're going to go back through these, so just wet your appetite here. First, his necessary sacrifice. Second, his chosen suffering. And third, his willing submission. We see Jesus go into the garden and he gets all alone and he prostrates himself before the Lord. He gets in a position of, of prayer. He gets in a position where he's alone and he, he, you see him kneel down and you see him get in a position where he's, he's just pouring himself out for the Lord. And the three things that I just outlined we're going to see here. Look back at your text. The first thing that we see and I want you to worship Jesus this morning for is his necessary sacrifice. Look at verse 41 and 42 again with me. It says, He withdrew from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and prayed saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. We see this in all three of the gospel accounts. Here in verse 42, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Matthew 26 is the other account of this same scene. If this is possible, it says, Mark chapter 14, verse 36, all, Jesus crying out, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. What? is happening here is we're seeing the Lord Jesus pour out his heart and he's saying if there is if God if there is any other way take this from me if there is any other way if you're willing if there's any other way take this from me he is staring at the next 24 hours of his life contemplating what is about to happen. He's looking at the cup. You, you see this imagery here, the cup. If it's possible, take this cup from me. And I'm going to out, outline for you in just a little bit what that cup is all about. But that cup is the cup of God's wrath. It is the cup of the just condemnation that is deserved for sinners like you and I. It is the cup that will be poured out, as Revelation says, in the end time upon the unjust and the wicked. That cup of God's wrath and condemnation, that cup of separation from God forever, that is the cup that Jesus is staring at. It is being handed to him by the Father. And he's saying, if it is possible, if there is any other way, God, if you're willing, if this can happen any other way, take it from me. But what we know from the rest of the gospel accounts is that this cup cannot be taken from Jesus. And it will not be taken from Jesus. Because if there was another way, it would have been provided. But there was no other way. And today there is no other way. Listen here. Jesus did not have to die. Listen. Now, you may look at that. You may listen to that and say, what, do you, what is Barrett talking about? He's a preacher of the gospel. Jesus didn't have to die. There was nothing in Jesus deserving of sin. Nothing. Nothing that he had done deserved death. 
He did not have to die. The seed of corruption of the fallen race was not in him. Jesus did not have to die unless you and I were to be saved. You hear me? You, and, you, have, you have no choice. You will die, right? Okay, let me just see. You, you need to think about this. You're going to die, all right? I'm not trying to be morbid. You will die. Everybody in history has died, but Jesus is the only man in history that's ever been on this earth that did not have to die. He did not have to die unless he wanted to save you and me. The reason that Jesus had to lay down his life was because of you and me. There was no other way. This cup had to be poured out on a perfect sacrifice if you and I were to be free. And Jesus in this moment is revealing to us that this sacrifice that he is about to make is a necessary sacrifice for your sins and for mine. Now you say, why is that? Now this is interesting, right? Why is that? The Bible teaches us that God is a perfect and holy God. He's a God that is completely separated from sin. He is a perfect and holy God. He is a great God. You see in the Bible these pictures, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, right? He's a perfect God. He cannot tolerate sin. It's just the fact of it. He cannot tolerate sin. And he cannot tolerate sinners. His hatred, his wrath is poured out to both sin and sinners. He is a perfect God who must uphold his righteousness. He must uphold his glory. He must uphold his holiness. He cannot compromise with sin. It cannot be in his presence. We all understand this, right? But God also loves you. And you're a sinner. You not only have sin, but you by your nature are a sinner. One detestable to God. One who is outside of his presence. One who cannot be in his presence with your sin. So the question is, how does God uphold his holiness and extend his love at the same time to save you? How, how, does it, how is it possible? And the answer is Jesus Christ. Because Jesus came to fulfill the law. Jesus upheld God's perfect standard of righteousness, that standard that is needed to be with God in, the pre- in his presence of holiness. Jesus came to fulfill that perfect standard of righteousness, but Jesus also came to take the penalty for your sin and mine. The Bible teaches that the payment for sin is death by blood. There is only one payment for sin, and it is death by blood. Sin is deserving of death. And I need you not to put this on somebody else. I need you to think about it within yourself. Your sin, you are a sinner. Everybody needs to say this. I am a sinner. Say this. I'm a sinner. I am deserving of death. You are deserving of death. The Bible teaches that there is one payment for sin, and it is death by blood. So not only do we need his perfect righteousness, but we need our sin removed. 
And if it's not removed by someone else, it will be removed by our own death and our own blood. So Jesus, God saves us by sending Jesus to uphold his perfect righteousness and to be the sacrificial offering for our sin so that by his death by blood, we might be saved. Isn't this wonderful? The Bible says that Jesus came so that God, this is Romans 3.25, so that God could be both just and the justifier. He upholds his holiness, but he also extends his grace. In the same act with Jesus on the cross, this is how God saves. And the Bible says there is no other name under heaven by which man must be saved. There is no other way. Are y'all tracking with me? There is no other way. There is no other provision for salvation. There is no other way. Jesus himself is crying out in the garden, Lord, if you are willing, if it is possible, take this from me. But it can't be taken from him if you are to be set free. The wonderful news of the gospel is that the great judge of the earth has taken the place of a criminal to satisfy his own demand for justice. Y'all tracking? This is amazing love, is it not? This is amazing love. From the beginning, Revelation chapter 13, 8. I want you to see how wonderful God is. Revelation chapter 13, verse 8 says this, that Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Jesus, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. What this teaches us is that from the very beginning, before you were created, before Adam and Eve were created, before anything was in existence, from the very beginning, it was in the heart of God to save sinners like you and me. It was in the heart of God from the very beginning. Jesus was the appointed willing Savior within that triune, wonderful God that we serve. He was always the one appointed and willing to come and lay down His life as a lamb slain before you were ever created, before you ever sinned. It was always in the heart of God to uphold His holiness and satisfy His wrath by sending Jesus to die on the cross for your sins and for mine. Isn't Jesus wonderful? It was the only way. Jesus, the necessary sacrifice for sin. And if we were going to be saved, it had to happen. Listen, I enjoyed Thanksgiving meal on Thursday, right? Anybody enjoy Thanksgiving Thursday? Somebody told me this morning, went to Huey's. I said, wow, that's cool. Anyway, no matter where we were, we enjoyed Thanksgiving. Now, if you're going to eat Thanksgiving meal, right? Something, some food has to die, unless you're a vegetarian. Then nothing has to die, but you've got to pick it, right? Something has to be picked. Something has to be processed. Something has to be cooked. Something has to be served, right? Now, you don't have to enjoy Thanksgiving meal. It, it could be your choice that you just don't eat Thanksgiving meal, but if you're going to eat Thanksgiving meal, those things have to happen. And the same thing is true with the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have to be saved. You don't deserve salvation. God didn't have to give salvation. Did you know that God would be totally just if he didn't save anyone? If he didn't put his presence in us, we walked away from God. He didn't have to do that, but if he was going to do that, 
it had to happen through the Lord Jesus Christ. It had to happen exactly how it happened. If he was going to save anyone, Jesus had to come and die and lay down his life. And Jesus did just that. And we should worship him this morning for giving himself as our necessary sacrifice. Amen? All right, second reason. Get ready. Here we go. His chosen suffering. Not only should we worship Jesus for being our necessary sacrifice, but we should worship him for his chosen suffering. If you look back at the word of God with me, verse 44, and I think it's interesting here, this happens in Gethsemane. Anybody know what Gethsemane means? Olive press. A place of pressing. And we see our Lord Jesus going through unbearable suffering here. Look at verse 44. It says, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Read it again. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Matthew chapter 26, verse 38 records this as well. Jesus says, My soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. Luke 13, verse 34 says this, that he began to be distressed and troubled. He said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And going a little further, he fell down on the ground and prayed that the hour might pass from him. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 is another glimpse into this moment, what I believe is this moment in the life of the Lord Jesus and maybe other moments like this along the way. But he says, In the days of his flesh, talking about Jesus, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Jesus, the Son of God, knew full well what he was about to experience. He knew that he would soon rise from the grave, but it did not take the agony away from this moment. We need to think more often about the suffering of the Lord Jesus for your sins and for mine. He wasn't suffering in this moment because of something he had done. He was suffering in this moment because of something that you have done. These tears are not tears because he's a sinner. These tears are tears because you are a sinner and I am a sinner. This agony is not the weight of his sin. This agony is the weight of our sin. He prayed, it says in the Greek, more earnestly. This is an aorist participle, and it means that it's growing in intensity. As the hour is approaching, his pain, his agony, it is growing and growing and growing to the point that Dr. Luke, Luke is a doctor. Some of you are doctors in this room. Dr. Luke here records that his sweat falls down like great drops of blood. And I don't know whether this is great drops of blood as in Actual blood, there is a condition. I wrote it down here because I can't remember medical terms. Hematidrosis. Where under great emotional stress, 
you can actually, it says here, tiny blood vessels right under the skin rupture and your sweat mingles with blood such that sweat pours out through your enlarged pores almost as blood. It could have been that Jesus is actually under such turmoil that his, his, his vessels are popping and that blood is actually coming out of his head. Or it could be that this sweat is just like big clots of blood falling down. But nevertheless... Jesus is under great emotional agony, great physical agony, and great spiritual agony. If you go to the next slide, I want to show you this morning why, why was there such agony experienced here in this garden this day? First, I want to show you his mental and emotional agony. He was the Son of God, maker of heaven and earth. But now in his mind and in his spirit were thoughts of the hardness and unbelief of men everywhere. The rejection of his own people, the Jews. The malice of the world's leaders. The betrayal of one of his own. The desertion of all of his men. The denial by the leader of his own men, Peter. The injustice and the condemnation of his trials. The ridicule and the pain of being scourged and spit upon and slugged and cursed and mocked and crowned with thorns and nailed to a cross and killed. The wrath of God that was soon to be upon him, the sin bearer of the world. The departure of God's spirit from him as he bore the sins of the world. Imagine in this moment the great emotional and mental agony that the Lord Jesus must have felt with all of this happening in the same moment in his life. Not only great mental and emotional agony, but the physical experience of death, being the Son of God. What would it be like for the Son of Man who did not deserve to die, who had never had any corrupt seed in his body, never sinned, not a single day, you and all, you and I both understand what it's like marching toward death. Jesus had never understood it. He didn't deserve it, and it wasn't in his nature. What would it be like to lose life? What a humbling thing to lay down his life unto physical death, something he had never tasted and something that he did not deserve. And finally, I need you to see this morning that the pain and agony of Jesus was not primarily because of his mind or his emotions. It was not primarily because of his physical experience. Listen, there are a lot of people who have given their life as a martyr. There are a lot of people who have gone through death. That's something that can be endured. But you know that what Jesus endured, that you and I will never have to, that made this so agonizing, was the spiritual experience of being separated from the God who he loved and had been with for all of eternity. What made this so painful was the fact that he was about to be separated from the one true and living God because he was going to bear the sins of the whole world, including yours. He was facing separation from God. He would bear, as Isaiah 53.10 says, he would bear the sins of the whole world. This cup that the, Jesus speaks of and that Scripture speaks of is not something that is pleasant to think about. This cup is a real cup. It's a real cup that God has reserved to pour out on sin and sinners forever. 
Isaiah 51, verse 17 says, This is the cup of the Lord's fury. Psalm 11, Isaiah 51, and Luke 22 all describe this cup and associate it with suffering and the wrath of God. Psalm 75, verse 8 says that this cup is a cup of God's judgment on sin. And let me tell you how this cup gets filled. Imagine a cup here. Some of you will go home this afternoon and fill a cup. And when you fill a cup, you should think about it. Imagine a cup here. Every time you sin, more gets filled into that cup. God's wrath, God's fury, God's judgment, God's righteous anger. It's a cup of sin. And as you sin, that cup of God's righteous anger and wrath towards sin, even your sin and even you, gets fuller and fuller and fuller and fuller. And the Bible says that there must be a payment for that sin, your sin. And let me tell you, friends, the book of Revelation describes that this cup one day will be poured out on all who have refused to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. This is a cup of wrath that will be poured out forever and forever. But let me tell you the great news and part of Jesus' agony here in the garden is that Jesus is going to take that cup for you. He will take that cup of God's wrath and fury toward your sin and He will drink it until every last drop is completely gone such that when God looks at you in eternity, He doesn't pour out His cup of wrath, but He pours out His cup of love. Amen? Jesus takes the cup of God's wrath toward all who trust in Him. Imagine the spiritual agony of this moment in Jesus' life. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Romans 5, verse 6 says, In the right time Christ died for the ungodly. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21 says, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might in him become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 2, verse 24 says, Jesus has in his own self borne our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness. By his stripes we are healed. Jesus, totally sinless. I need you to identify yourself with him in this moment because what is happening here is that Jesus, the perfect, sinless, eternal Son and Lamb of God, is picking up the cup of God's wrath that you deserve, that you earned. He is picking it up for you. He is taking into his own body your sins. He is receiving the lashings that you deserve. He is being pierced for your transgressions. He is bearing the pain of what you caused. Jesus, 
Jesus is taking on your sins in this moment so that you might be set free. I thank Jesus for his suffering because he suffered. I will not suffer. Amen? But in this moment, you need to appreciate Jesus. And there's no wonder that he says, my soul is heavy unto death because he is separated from God. You will never have to be if you put your faith in him. We worship Jesus this morning. We come to adore him not only because of his necessary sacrifice and not only because of his chosen suffering, but third and finally, we come to worship and adore him this morning because of his willing submission. If you go back to the word of God, you look at verse 42. Jesus, pouring out his soul, says, Father, If you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Matthew records this. Jesus saying, not as I will, but as you will. If this cannot pass from me, your will be done. Mark records this in verse 36. Yet not my will, but your will. Listen and appreciate the wonder of Jesus here. In this moment of great agony, mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually, staring in the face, separation from God, taking on your sins and mine, bearing the agony, the pain, and the suffering of the whole world, In this moment, with that in his face, what did he do? Did he run away from God? Did he throw up his hands and say, I'm done, I can't do it? Did he turn from the lot that God had assigned for him? Did he throw up his hands and curse God in bitterness and say, I hate you? Did he run away in defeat? No. He ran to God. He didn't run away from God. He ran to God. And he prayed. He was honest with the Lord. He poured out his soul, but he submitted his will to God. And he said, not my will, but yours be done. And I praise Jesus this morning because he submitted himself unto death to our God. Amen? And I pray that in the deepest and darkest time of suffering in your life, you don't run away from God and you don't turn your eyes to God and curse Him and you don't throw your hands up in defeat, but you turn to God and you let God do what only God can do and that is fill you with His Spirit such that you can obey and complete His perfect will for you. And that's exactly what what Jesus did here. Famous pianist Liszt said of Chopin's Nocturne in C-sharp minor, I must tell you about it. In this piece is all sorrow and trouble. Oh, such sorrow and trouble until he speaks, begins to speak to God, to pray. And then it is all right. In verse 43, we see what happens when he turns to the Lord. And he says, not my will, but yours be done. And it says, and there appeared to him an angel. Hmm. An angel from heaven, strengthening him. 
You think about the wonder of what God is doing here. He's, God wants your salvation so bad. He wants glory to His name for His mercy so much that in Jesus' moment of greatest pain and agony, at this turning point in Jesus' life, this decision point, God moves in and sends His angels. You know, angels could not save you and I. But they can strengthen the Savior of you and I. And that is what God did with His angels. He sent His angels to encourage Him, to strengthen Him, to remind Him of what He's about to do, to remind Him of the reward of the suffering servant, as Isaiah 53 talks about, to remind Him of the salvation that's going to come when He lays down His soul unto death. The angels serve Him and minister to Him. And what an encouragement to God's people when we wrestle through difficult times to know that we can go to God and He will do what He needs to do to strengthen you until you have the resolve to obey Him. Amen? For every Gethsemane, there are angels. And He says, Your will be done. This was not said in helpless submission as if He was powerless. It was not said in begrudging submission as if He was battered. It was not said in hopeless submission as if all were lost. It was said in willing submission and in trust. William Barclay says this, He was speaking to the one who was his father. He was speaking to a God whose everlasting arms were underneath and about him, even on the cross. He was submitting, but he was submitting to the love that would never let him go. Life's hardest task is to accept what we cannot understand. But we can even do that if we're sure enough of the love of God. In this moment, Jesus is submitting, and He's submitting to the Father's will. And I want to tell you real quick why you should praise Jesus. I'm telling you, you should praise the Lord Jesus because He submitted. I'm, t- I'm, I'm just saying There are things that the Lord Jesus does for us that sometimes we don't take time to specifically go through and thank Him for. I want you to thank Him for how He submitted Himself. Hebrews 2, verse 9 and 10. Everybody turn to the book of Hebrews. I want to show you something. Hebrews 2, verse 9 and 10. Listen. It is in Jesus' surrender that he was made perfect and able to stand before God as a perfect man. Listen, if Jesus had not submitted to the Father, he would have not been perfect. And if he had not been perfect, he could not stand before God as your perfection. You track it with me? Look at this. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Verse 10, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. In this moment of Christ's suffering and submission, he was achieving the perfection that was necessary for you and I to stand before God in perfect righteousness. Amen? Praise Jesus that he submitted and suffered. Look at Hebrews chapter 5. Flip to the next few chapters. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8 and 9. And I want to show you that it was in his surrender to be the perfect man that his righteousness was able to stand for us. 5, verse 8 and 9. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, 
He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. Because He obeyed God, because He submitted to God, because He chose to suffer rather than to run away, He was able to attain for us the perfect righteousness that is needed for us to stand before God. And I thank God that Jesus' obedience counts for mine. Aren't you thankful for that? Jesus' obedience counts for mine. If He had not submitted it would not have counted for us. And it was in his surrender to be the perfect man that he was able to bear the cup of God's wrath against all the sins of the world. That's what Isaiah 53.10 teaches us. And finally, it was in his surrender to be the perfect man that his sacrifice and sufferings were able to stand for every man. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.21 is so critical to our faith. God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. In this moment, listen, (laughs) this moment was a turning point in Jesus' life and ministry. The salvation of the world, everybody look real quick. The salvation of the world and the salvation of you depended on in this moment whether or not God, excuse me, whether or not Jesus would submit to God unto death. The salvation of the world in this moment depended on whether or not Jesus would choose to take on suffering to take on the agony, to push into God and to submit His will to the fathers such that He would go to the cross for you and I. It depended on that in this moment. And I praise Jesus with all of my heart and soul that in this moment He chose the cross. In this moment that He could have turned away, He chose the cross. He set his face toward Calvary and chose to endure what was necessary to save you and I. And that is why Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 says this, Let us look to Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Listen, friends, this morning, I want you to consider Jesus. I think it's quite fitting. This is in conclusion. It's quite fitting that this thing took place in a garden. You ever thought about this? This thing took place in a garden. Gardens have a prominent role in the Word of God. Everything began in a garden. A place of perfect intimacy with God. A place of union with God. A place where hearts were meant to be satisfied in God. Adam and Eve were put in a garden. That place that God originally intended for men and women to be, for you and I to be. But we know from the Word of God, Genesis chapter 3, that Adam and Eve fell. 
they sinned against God, rebelled against his authority, questioned who he was, and turned away. And all of us, like sheep, like Adam and Eve, have turned away. And they were banned from that garden. They were pushed out of the garden because of their sin, because in that garden was the place that God dwelt, his perfect holiness, his perfect unity, his perfect fellowship. That's the place where God dwelt. And in the presence of God, there cannot be sin. Adam and Eve were pushed from that garden. But we know from the word of God that God's intent and his plan and his desire from the very beginning of time was to restore us to the place where we could be in that garden again. Where we could be in that place where our hearts were happy, where we were with God face to face, where everything was right, our hearts were full, our joy was in him, our satisfaction was complete. That was God's desire and intent the whole time and it's his desire and intent today. And that's why in Revelation chapter 22, God paints a picture of what heaven will be like. It says in verse tw- Revelation 22, there will be a river of a water of life, bright as a crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And on either side of the river, guess what comes back in heaven? The tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in each month, the leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him and they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light. They will reign forever and forever. What God intended from the beginning, he will restore in the end. But between these two gardens, there's the Garden of Gethsemane. where Jesus had to take the cup from the Father's hand. And let me tell you, if there was no garden of Gethsemane, if he had not given himself to provide the necessary sacrifice, if he had not chosen suffering, if he had not been willing to submit, there would be no garden for us to look forward to in the end. But because he did, we have a hope and a future. Because he took the sin of you and I, we have something to sing about, don't we? Jesus is a wonderful Savior. And I pray this morning that you could worship him for who he is and what he's done. If you don't know the Lord Jesus, there are people here this morning, I know for a fact, that do not know Jesus Christ as Savior. You've never received from his hand. Let me tell you this morning, that there is no other salvation. There is no other salvation apart from the salvation God has provided through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that cup of wrath that I was talking about earlier will be poured out on those in the end who have not been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. I pray today that you might allow Jesus to take the cup from you. Take your sin and receive from him life because he died, we can live. There are others of you this morning who are believers and you've been believers and you just need to be renewed in your love for Jesus. And you need to cry out this morning as we sing, Lord Jesus, renew my heart for you. Help me to be more grateful for what you've done. Help me to see that you're taking on what I deserved. Help me to embrace suffering and submission as a lifestyle today because this is the example that you have set for us. Jesus, we love you. Thank you, God.
for saving me. Let's stand and respond as God leads. I'm here if you need me, if you want to join this church. Take